Welcome to Black Body Health, the podcast. This is the show where we come together to talk about the intersection of our health and our culture. Podcasting from South Louisiana, this is Brittany Castine, preacher, pastor, political junkie, and now podcaster. And I am Ideal Ortiz, your co-host with Brittany, hailing from the Bull City and a longtime public health advocate. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's get started. So last time we gathered here on Black Body Health, the podcast, we talked a little bit about some safety tips during the holidays because, you know, COVID rates um, are still increasing. And y'all, you know, let's, let's have some common sense about this here. It's not just uh, safety around gathering around the dinner table. It is also safety regarding you need to you need to keep up your safety about going out for these sales y'all and we need to we need to understand that you can just as easily get covid with throngs of people at a store looking for sales y'all end up catching something else other than a sale Look, let's be clear, the uh, retail establishments all over both the in-person traditional big box stores as well as uh, online retailers are ginning up all sorts of sales to entice you and entice me to come out and get a new, uh, you know, Keurig or you know, a television set, whatever it may be. You know, yeah. some places have new t-shirts on sale and I need a whole bunch of new t-shirts because the ones that I have, uh, I've washed them so much to where the white ones are yellow and the yellow ones are white. But anyway, if you are going, <laughs> if you are going shopping, there's a way to do it. You know, a lot of people have been emphasizing instead of going out, taking a look at Cyber Monday. In fact, retailers have been offering Black Friday sales now for the past two weeks. I know. Also, you can have. I don't feel like there's any need to stand in line and put yourself at risk and worry about being out there with all the germs and the virus counts and all. Like, let's not do that because, quite frankly, all of the online options available to you are a lot safer. I will also say that um, local retailers, small businesses are trying really, really hard also to let you order things online. You can call in ahead, ask about inventory, insist on curbside delivery. There's all kinds of things that small businesses are doing. And I would really encourage us in this season, as we know that small businesses are being hit much harder during COVID. And you know, this is Black Body Health, the podcast. So I would be remiss if we didn't say that, obviously we wanna make sure that our black businesses are here when this pandemic ends. And they're gonna need us to take a special effort to shop with them. And so call, call up your local black business Spend as much money with them during this season as you can. This is a quarter that many seasons, many stores depend on, many businesses depend on um, to finish out their health, their, their year healthy, financially speaking. And so let's go ahead and call our local Black businesses, let them know that we care about them and see, ask them, you know, ask them, how can we do business with you safely? Is there an hour of the day that is less busy for us to come in? Do you offer your inventory online? Can we do curbside pickup? Um, can you bring items out to the car? Whatever we can do to make that experience safer for not just the customer, but quite frankly, workers of many of these businesses are very vulnerable. So we need to do what we can to keep them safe too, many of which are not working 
for wages that um, uh, are high enough to, 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 to live well. And so we just want to make sure that folks are taken care of. And one of the ways we can do that is by not putting pressure where it doesn't belong. COVID is still real. Um, the numbers are creeping up all around us, all across the country. The numbers are very concerning. We need to do our part right now uh, as much as possible to reduce the spread of COVID-19. That means, of course, doing things like washing your hands, using sanitizer, social distancing, and wearing of masks. And so as you are out and about shopping, if you must get out, if you absolutely have to scratch that itch and go into a store, please remember to practice all of the very important measures, prevention measures that are out there to reduce the spread of COVID-19. We are in this together and we are all depending on each other to get through this season and get through it without increasing COVID all over the place. Let's make sure that we get through the holidays with great cheer and as little um, negativity as possible. And that is all in our hands. Literally, that is all in our hands and in our choices. Today we have three lovely guests and we're gonna let them introduce themselves. Um, as we've said today, we're gonna be discussing Medicaid and HIV advocacy. And we've got these wonderful people that we want you to get to know. They've got really important information to share with us about where things are right now. And we will let them tell us a little bit about themselves. So fellas. Hey, how y'all doing? So uh, my name is Torian L. Baskerville. I am a senior associate for uh, prevention at NASDAQ. Um, I have been in this field for a little over, oh my God, almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in January. Hello, my name is Wesley McWhite. I am a policy and development manager for the Highest of the AIDS Foundation in New Jersey, largest and first AIDS organization in the state. Good afternoon, my name is Dante Prayer. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I am the health access coordinator for the North Carolina AIDS Action Network and also the founder of Role Models Project. Great. It's wonderful to have all three of you here today for our discussion. So we know that HIV AIDS has had a deeper impact in the Black community. And um, we've seen so many lives impacted by this disease. And so, you know, the stories that we know from media about the way this has all unfolded, you know, lots of things have changed. And maybe our national narrative about this has not stayed up to date with current events. Are there things that y'all would like to share with us about the state of things now around testing, different innovations, networks of support? We just like to get a little catch up. Um, thank you again for having me, if I haven't said that already. Um, so I just read recently a New York Times article, I'm not sure if you guys saw it, about the CDC report on uh, mortality and morbidity. And it stated um, last decade that HIV-related causes of death have halved. They went down by about 50%. But that is not true for Black Americans, for women of color, and specifically gay uh, men and men who have sex with men in the South. And so it was so jarring to me 
because we do so much HIV advocacy work in the North and the South, really all regions, uh, but my work is particularly in the Northeast and in New Jersey. And it's frustrating because you have to constantly have these kind of conversations, right? That yes, we are doing better, but we are still not addressing the uh, comorbidities of health. We are still not addressing um, uh, all of the issues that lead up to these kind of numbers, right? So you constantly have to kind of have the counter narrative to folks that saying, oh, well, HIV is not that big of a deal. Well, yes, it is because Black people are still disproportionately dying from this disease. So a large part of our advocacy work in New Jersey is still trying to tell elected officials that this is a very much real thing this is a very real thing and it still needs to be dealt with systematically and not just giving someone some prescription pills and telling them to go ahead and take them and feel better. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I certainly appreciate the work that you bring and what you do, particularly uh, in the New Jersey area. One of the things that you brought up just a moment ago, and I recognize um, if you can't speak to it, but I think I heard you say that uh, men who have sex with men in the South uh, is that its own sort of designation? Is that its own category? Or did I misinterpret one of the things that you uh, were telling us just a moment ago? Uh, no, no, you're, you're right on point. So the article really flushes out some of the data in that CDC report. And so when you think about HIV prevention, especially for the Black community, we also have to look at it geographically, right? So what's happening with men who have sex with men in the North is not the same as what's happening with men who have sex with men in the South. And the epidemic is so different in the South that they're being referred to as the geographical South mixed in with other continents and, and the continent of Africa and that those numbers in Atlanta and Georgia and surrounding areas are so incredibly high that you have to root, you have to root out some of those causes geographically as well. So you heard me right, yeah. yeah so, is, so, what is, so what is going on in the global or geographic South that is different from the North um, that's impacting those numbers? I'm just really curious. So, um, like I said, I'm here in the South in North Carolina. And um, I think part of that reason is why the numbers are still increasing for people of color, and particularly same gender loving males in the South, is because we are in the South. Um, there's racism, there's, you know, the Bible Belt effect where, you know, people want to, you know, engaged but not holistically engaged because sometimes you know when they if they do get a diagnosis that's kind of like convicting them as well as far as their religious faith and things of that nature so um i personally feel that you know we need to address racism in the south we need to address um so all the social determinants of health that is required to break down um and eradicate hiv um particularly in the South. Like I said, you know, there's barriers to housing, there's barriers to transportation, there's barriers to just overall health access. So I think those social determinants of health um, paired with, you know, systemic racism is a reason why the numbers in the South are still, you know, on that plateau. So we yeah. sound, go ahead. I'm sorry, Torian, go ahead. I just want to, I just want to, um, 
also make sure that we include in the conversation, right? Homophobia, transphobia, right? All of those other isms, right? That's not just only racism, right? And, and, and also determinants of health. I'm so excited that Dante brought that up is because that's one of the major things that we see that is the only difference between white gay men and black gay bisexual men who have sex with men, right? Sexual behavior is no different, right? So if sexual behavior is no different, um, if, if black and brown gay men are not having more risky sex than their white counterparts, why then are the numbers higher, right? And so I think right. it's important to highlight social determinants of health. I think another thing that is specific to the South is Medicaid expansion or the lack thereof, right? And so um, while the North has more uh, programs and more money that has been allocated to some of those other um, social determinants of health or, or, or ways to address those, the South, many of those in the South who did not take advantage of that, right? Yeah. And so it's also important to bring that up into the, into the space as well, recognizing that a lot of the issues that are happening in the South are systemic and like institutional things, not necessarily community things. Right. And so it goes back to the issue of, you know, our very first podcast was about the political determinants of health, um, which are obviously very closely linked to the, you know, to the social determinants of health. And I like the way that that book, the, the, the title of that particular podcast was framed as the political determinants of health, because we understand that it is political choices and decisions that set up certain systems that become your social determinants of health. Correct. And so I love that you've mentioned that you know, HIV isn't really behaving very differently. So we don't need to be judging people independently, you know, like of their individual sexual behavior choices, because the same things that are happening with HIV are happening with all kinds of other chronic diseases. They are all being impacted by things like housing, transportation, your income, (laughs) what is the quality of care you can access? So those kinds of things, whether that's through insurance or because you don't have a doctor's office even close to you. Um, so those kinds of things, you know, don't treat HIV differently. So why do we expect that to be different in the black community? We expect that one disease is, should just, you know, oh no, it's not gonna be impacted by these things that all the diseases show an impact based on those social determinants of health. So, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about one of those systems though, Medicaid expansion. like. Dang, y'all, like, <laughs> what in the world is going on with the South and Medicaid expansion, and how are we seeing that sort of interplay with HIV? So, with treatment or, with treatment or um, uh, transmission, so. Sure, so in the, under the Affordable Care Act during the Obama administration, it gave states uh, the opportunity to expand Medicare under that law. Right. And so (laughs) it should not be a partisan issue, but it turned out to be a partisan issue. And my um, anger, my righteous indignation is surrounded around the fact that we are seeing incredible outcomes in states that have expanded 
uh, access to Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Virginia was one of the first states to do a study on this. I think it was about 2015, 2016, and they studied um, their Medicaid expansion, persons living with HIV under their Medicaid expansion in Virginia versus those that were just a part of their state-run um, ADAP program, their drug distribution program. And they found that viral load suppression was around over 80% for folks that were getting their care under Medicaid, opposed to less than 60% for those that were getting state-run um, drug distribution programs. And so what we're finding across these great United States is that it's not only fiscally responsible to expand Medicaid, but it's also just socially responsible. It's, respons it's taking responsibility for the overall health for persons living with HIV. And as I'm sure we know that um, Medicaid constitute for almost 50% of persons living with HIV get their health care through Medicaid. And the reason it's so successful is because it just doesn't give people prescriptions, right? It gives people access to dental care, mental health, addiction services, transportation, right? All of those things we talked about earlier that need to be in place for somebody to not just get you know, re to re receive uh, viral suppression, but also to take care of their, the, their health on a holistic level. And in some states like in Jersey, for instance, it's even more extreme than that. 80% of people living with HIV are getting their care through Medicaid. And most of those folks are Black folks. So this isn't a, just a healthcare issue. This is a, a racial justice issue. This is a social justice issue. This is a health equity justice issue. And trying to make that plain to elected officials is very difficult because then- Why, what is, what is so difficult? I wanna know like, what, what is it that is the challenge? Like when you're in that office with the legislative director and you're trying to make the case, what is it, what is the snag in that conversation? Because what you're telling me right now sounds very compelling. When you tell me it's socially and fiscally responsible, I was like, oh, it's cheaper? Okay now, okay, save my state some pockets, you know. <laughs> but I just wanna know, like, what is, the, what is the thing that you're hearing back that they're saying, mm, we're not ready for that and here's why? Okay, so here we go. Two different things that are happening that I see, <laughs> right? Under Medicaid, right? Medicaid is a state-run program with federal requirements. And Medicaid is not always administered by the government itself, the state government itself. It is administered through Medicaid managed care companies. And Medicaid managed care companies can be, you know, your name brand health insurances like Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or one of those, right? And so what they do is they contract with the state to administer Medicaid to low-income individuals, to uh, minority in, uh, individuals, to rural populations. And so when they negotiate these contracts, they are technically negotiating with the governor's office and with the legislators. And so though, it, specifically in New Jersey, our Medicaid managed care contracts don't go, come up for renegotiation for every 
seven to 10 years. So in that seven to 10 years, decades long span, there are new drug treatments, there are new prevention methods, there are um, innovations in medicine. Eventually we're gonna get um, injectables where folks will only go to the doctor's office every three months and get an injection and they're good uh, for their HIV medication. But what you're seeing is some concerted efforts for health insurance companies to get in the way of care, of the care of those that are living with HIV. That's just one thing. And You brought up a point just a moment ago, and it is fairly consistent, pretty consistent across the entire country that prior to the Affordable Care Act or, um, you know, Obamacare, as it is affectionately known in some circles, my circles, um, you know, uh, that it, it was quite different. So prior to the Affordable Care Act, uh, in order to qualify for Medicaid, an enrollee had to be both low income and categorically eligible. So that meant that a person had to be, you know, maybe someone with a disability or pregnant or some other challenge or issue. And so what that really did is it presented, it represented a catch-22 for many low-income people with HIV who couldn't qualify for Medicaid until they were already quite sick and already uh, at a level of disability, despite the fact that we all know, and you've indicated several times throughout our talk today, that early access to treatment could help stave off disability and significantly improve health outcomes. And so, you know, for all of the political talk, for all of the issues that some folks may have with the Affordable Care Act. This is yet another clear indication that the Affordable Care Act saves lives and more specifically saves Black lives. And for people who may not necessarily care about Black lives, it saves money, it sounds like. And so, you know, I mean, we care about Black lives here, but we're also trying to be realistic about the fact that we live in a world currently that's very divided and that it's still questioning whether or not Black people have a right to exist. I mean, let's just be very frank about that or exist freely and not necessarily for the money-making purposes of other people. Um, and so, you know, that's very evident, I think, in the numbers. And so when we think about the fact that African-Americans only represent 12% of the population, and yet they're sharing, what, about 43% of the HIV diagnoses that are coming out that's that to me says something is wrong in the in the water and not with the fish if you will and you know you've named some very specific things um about the ecosystem in which we're living that more deeply impacts black people and more pertinently here about medicaid you know just the way that private corporations which are very driven by the bottom line are getting in the way of black folks accessing essential care that they need for themselves um you know, Brittany and I both reside in the South. I'm in North Carolina as well, Dante. So shout out out here in the Bull City. And Brittany is in Louisiana. And so we totally get the pieces about the homophobia, the sort of religiosity that does not permit people to seek freely for themselves all the time, the things that they need. Um, and then also just the, the resources that have been lagging behind, especially as it pertains to Medicaid expansion. I just want to know, you know, that, that paints such a bleak picture. And there were nuggets in things that y'all are saying that speak to some hope. 
And so I'm just really curious about on the front along stigma or treatment, if there are things that we have to look forward to, are there bright spots about how things are moving? So, you know, being that we are in North Carolina and to piggyback with um, the, the previous question and to answer this question, um, I think, you know, a reason why Medicaid expansion hasn't happened in North Carolina specifically is because um, there is like this power struggle. There is this political reason. There is, people want to be in control because our governor um, is down for Medicaid expansion. So to answer that question, being that, just, yeah, being that he just got reelected, hopefully that will be the hopefulness and the shining star to actually get Medicaid expanded in North Carolina in the near future. Yes, there's a lot of more work and advocacy work that we need to get done, but um, being that he is um, in support of Medicaid expansion, um, like I said, that's a brim of hope. And I just wish that some of the other election results in North Carolina came out in a more favorable um, way, because I feel like that way we could have Medicaid expanded in North Carolina sooner. Because like I said, I think it really boils down to, you know, people want to be in control. They want to have, and you know, they have this privilege. Because like I said, we go lobby all the time and people be like, wow, you know, like they never heard about it. And it's because they are privileged and they don't see themselves sitting in that seat when eventually they could be that person or someone directly connected to them could be a person living with HIV. So um, yeah, so for me, holding our legislators and general assembly accountable and making sure we are voting in the right people, these primary elections are very important. I mean, I know we turned that out for the presidential election recently, but we need to turn it out in our primary elections as well so we can get you know our, the right governors, the right um, state officials um, on board primary and midterms y'all like there's so many things that get impacted by that it's not just the presidential election any other bright spots of hope that we should be looking forward to innovations programs that are just dope i'm just wanting to make sure that we know that there is still good work happening out there so i think um i'm a community person um i love community um and i always do my best at speaking from the community perspective and I think one bright spot for me and all of the craziness that's happened in the last eight months, right, um, has been the galvanization of Black people, right, and how we have decided to no longer wait on people who are in elected official who are in elected positions, but really decide that we're going to take our community in our own hands and decide to, to make, um, do our best to kind of progress our own communities, right? And we've done that, you know, for ever, right? But I think now we, we're at a different, um, it's, it's, a, it's a tipping point, I think, um, in community, right? We, we all are, uh, you know, uh, stuck in the house and, you know, we've, we've had to have moments of like reflecting on ourselves and what we can do differently and what as a community we can do differently. And I think that there is a lot of, you know, things that are brewing um, like podcasts, right? That's giving people space to talk about 
these topics, right? Which have for many years been very taboo subjects in our community, right? And so even having platforms like this, you know, and all of the other platforms that we have that actually just have these conversations, I think it's important, right? Um, it's also, you know, talking about treatment, right? It's important to, to bring up the fact that while I believe wholeheartedly that, that a pill will never be able to cure all of the ails of, uh, you know, social determinants of health and of mental health and all of these things, when we talk about scientifically speaking, as it relates to HIV, treatment is great, right? And we have all of these kind of clinical trials that are, you know, talking about PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis that's talking about, you know, NPEP or, you know, um, all of these things, uh, post-exposure prophylaxis, right? All of these things that have been uh, for many years, like unheard of, right? Um, and, and for many people, it's still unheard of, right? And so understanding that medication has advanced tremendously compared to where we were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, at the start of the epidemic, right? And so, you know, I think those are the bright spots, right? Um, and of course, there's more bright spots, you know, even in the South, there's a lot of great work that's happening coming out of, you know, places like Georgia, um, Atlanta, right, with so many CBOs or community-based organizations that are doing some really, really good work down there or in Florida, right? And, and you know, these are some of the spaces that we see some of the most um, impact of HIV in Black and Brown communities, right? And so I think it's, it's important that we continue to do the work, but it, it's also important that we keep our feet on the necks of people so that this is constantly a reminder that just because these advances in treatment is present and these biomedical things are happening, there is still a lot that still needs to be done in the community and around this issue, right? And I, I, I don't want it to be one of the things like they give us a piece of something and then we're satisfied and then we forget about the rest of the pie that's still out there for all of us to have. You know, I'm always uh, very impressed with the work that happens in various community-based organizations. I find as, you know, clearly the government has a role, individuals have a role, but I'm really often encouraged by the real dope work, the, the sheer innovation, frankly, that happens because community-based organizations provide that space uh, for innovation and safety and a sharing of dialogue to really take place. You know, I can't help but to talk about one particular type of organization that I have been long affiliated with. I am a Christian minister, a Methodist uh, pastor, and I do recognize that for um, this particular issue, uh, as we talk about HIV and AIDS, the church has been all over the place. Uh, the black church has been all over the place. We've been in a place, uh, we've occupied a seat of judgment, um, you know, and condemnation, but I've been encouraged to see that there are many, many faith-based organizations, many black churches that have taken a more progressive, which equals realistic stance of how we can best help our community, help our people, and be a resource um, for people living with HIV AIDS, but just generally speaking. I'm curious to know from those of you who have been in the trenches doing this work, uh, what has been your experience in the faith-based or with faith-based communities? Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to, to hear and to know sort of the real truth about the faith-based community's role and work as a partner or as a barrier uh, in making some real progress. 
Wesley and myself are very um, spiritually inclined <laughs> is the way that I will, I will say that. Right. And, and we've done some work in New Jersey, you know, working with faith-based um, organizations also with myself in, in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Right. Um, faith-based can be a double-edged sword, right? It could be both, um, um, supportive and, but it also can be a barrier, right? It can be, um, a, 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 um, a place where you can get some real movement and some real, uh, backing. Um, but then it could be like, again, as a black queer man going to a church and, and wanting to have a conversation with the pastor and say, Hey, listen, I know we often don't have, we don't want to acknowledge the gay folk in our church. Right. But, you know, when we're talking about potentially one in two black gay men living with HIV in their lifetime, right, by 2020, I don't know about, we're ending 2020 now, right? So when you're trying to have that conversation, um, I think one thing that I've learned in my working with faith-based communities is a couple things. One, relationships is important, right? And so it's important to walk into a church that you have a relationship with um, and that they, they know you beyond just your sexuality or the topic that you're talking right because if i can if i can connect with you on a human level i can then have a a a leveling conversation with you right um one thing that we always talk about is we don't argue values i don't discuss value when it talks about public health right i'm not going to talk to you about where what jesus said what were the greatest commandments like we're not going to have that conversation because that that's a conversation that we can debate and go back and forth on right what we can't debate on is the human need for um for health and wellness right and we all regardless of your you know your proclivity to religion or what faith we all can agree that every human deserves right healthiness wellness and, and a certain level of uh, standard of living, right? And so if we can agree on that part, we can then have a conversation on how can we as a community begin to help the individuals that are mostly impacted, right? When you talk about 69 or more percent of people who are new infected as of 2018, 69% of them are black and brown gay people, right? Gay, bisexual, men who have sex with men. And so that's not a, that's not a statistic that we can ignore, right? So it's about having that relationship, but then also just being, um, being honest, right? This, again, we're not going to argue your faith and your belief, right? Because that will, will get stuck there, right? But let's talk about what's happening. And and I, and I appreciate what you said earlier. um, And I wrote it down was about being realistic, right? Having realistic conversations. And I think, um, you know, pastors play a very important role in getting this message out because spirituality is so very important in the black community. Um, and so, you know, my experience has actually been really good, you know, setting up a couple of um, um, uh, programs within churches. Uh, I know in Atlanta, the Vision Church is doing really good work around HIV and AIDS. Uh, Rehoboth Fellowship of Atlanta is doing really good work down there um, around mobilization of, of HIV and AIDS. And so it's imp- important that we continue to kind of recognize the power of the faith-based community and not retreat because of the traumas of the things that we've been through, through some of our isms that potentially may be present. 
And that's a place where we know that leadership matters. And I know, Wesley, you want to get in here and, and say something as well. And, it, you know, leadership does matter. And uh, the role of the pastor is very important because when folks say, well, what is the church doing? Well, what's the church's stance on that? They're not asking what is the president of the usher board's stance on that or what is, you know, the head of the music ministry stance on that or, or you know, what is the choir doing to help resolve issues related to public health concerns. They want to know where the pastor's mindset is and what is he or she doing to sort of advance the public good around this. And so it's really good to know that we've had and that you've had some experiences, some that may have been a challenge to you, but certainly some that have been uh, a partnership in nature to do some good on behalf of people. Yeah, I think my experiences so far um, just working in this field. So before I got into policy work full time, I was also an HIV tester um, as of last year, really. And in the summertime, I would never forget going to Old Baptist Church in the middle of nowhere and doing HIV testing and tabling at one of their health affairs. And just speaking to the previous question about bright spots, one of the bright spots is the unlocking of the Black imagination that we are taking hold of yeah, industries and fields that we have been toiling and working in for decades and saying, okay, we have given you chance after chance after chance to work within the system and do it how it's supposed to have been done. So this is how we are going to do it. And so with like, like Torian was saying, relationships matter. And you aren't just going to walk up in a church and say, hey, I'm going to talk to y'all about HIV. No, no, no. You need to sit down and have a conversation and explain to pastors and leaders that this is still a very real issue. And what I appreciate about churches is that there's already a public health framework in churches. We're already dressing breast cancer on a large scale in Black churches. We're already now starting to really dress, uh, address uh, prostate cancer for men in Black churches. And the first health fair I saw when I was a little boy was at the church <laughs> in the church basement in the in the um, uh, what is it the cafeteria and so in building these relationships you have to establish the fact that hey regardless of what you know we may agree or disagree with like Torian said this is about the public health and this is about the public good and coming from a church background you know faith brought me to this work and faith is going to sustain us in this work right and so I'm coming to you because people are still dying for this and our people are still dying for this and people in the pews are still being affected and dying from this, but there is another way. So let me show you how. Testing and tracing, it's getting people on medication and, and getting rid of the fear and the stigma and the shame that so often permeates through some of our church spaces and realizing that there's greater outcomes when we partner with the Black church than when we disagree with one another. You know, one of the things I, I want to be sure that we deal with because you know, everybody on this call, you know, we are in some way involved with public health work, in some way involved with doing some great work around HIV and AIDS. But, you know, um, words matter and how we talk about issues and um, treatment and all of this stuff really does matter a great deal. And so, you know, are there better ways? How should we best communicate to each other? How should we best communicate to others around HIV and AIDS that is um, not, you know, offensive or uh, exclusionary or elitist 
or whatever, um, but speaks to positivity and frankly speaks to exactly what's going on. Personally, I feel that, um, like it was mentioned earlier, you know, relationships matter. Um, building that rapport will help when you're trying to get a message across because like I said, you just can't walk up in a church and talk about HIV if you don't have the pastor's buy-in or things of that nature. So I feel that's the same way with, you know, whether it's your peers, your colleagues, you know, those relationships better. And, um, you know, simple things as asking people their pronouns, um, using, you know, um, the right language as far as like, you know, we need to stop saying, you know, like personally, I try to not use, I try not to use or say, you know, AIDS. Um, I always try to say HIV. Um, I don't try to say infected. I always try to say diagnosis or a person living with AIDS, I mean, living with HIV. So it's just really, you know, um, being conscious of words and your delivery, I think that plays a big part into um, getting your message across because like I said, you know, and then like I said, you know, knowing who you're talking to because, you know, if I'm in a clinical space or if I'm in, will be, I will talk about HIV totally different if I was, you know, sitting in my living room with my friends or my family and I will deliver it in a manner that they will comprehend it and be like, oh, he's serious about it, opposed to me trying to use a bunch of jargon that they don't even understand. Because I think that's another thing too, like literacy comes into play. We have to um, make sure people understand the message that we're trying to get across. Yes, we can paint this pretty picture or have this line drawn out, you know, perfected speech, but if no one comprehends or understands it, it doesn't really matter. So that's my take on that. That is really, really helpful. Just the language switch that was in to, to be much more um, emphasizing of HIV rather than AIDS and people always centering people, people living with HIV living being such a key component here because people do are able to have a life. This is not um, necessarily the same sort of ecosystem we were living in in the 80s. I was born in 1980. It was the beginning of the crack epidemic and the AIDS epidemic. I was living in Queens, New York, and it was a really, really bleak time. And I'm not going to say, as Dante just said, that it's all roses, but it is also not that way anymore. It is not the same set of conditions and with World AIDS Day upon us on December 1st, you know, the, the 2020 theme um, for observance this year is ending the HIV AIDS epidemic, resilience and impact. And like y'all, when I was growing up, the way folks talked about this virus was as if it was a known death sentence and, and resilience wasn't even a conversation. It was just preparing you to end your life, you know, to preparing you to close up your affairs. And that is just not that way anymore. Um, so, you know, in terms of the resilience, um, that's just such a big theme. That's just a thing. And, and I hear it in everything that you're saying. 
Um, and I'm so thankful that y'all in, in discussing the pieces about the church, you know, it is, it is um, the church's blessing, quite frankly, that y'all haven't given up on them and that y'all do not concede territory and say, ah, oh, just to heck with it, that you are still faithfully trying to keep your hand on the till to do what it takes to get these diagnoses, these rates of diagnoses in the Black community to go down. And um, so I know that there are some CDC campaigns that are out there that are promoting more messages of resilience. There's the let's stop HIV together. And I, and I love the together part. It is going to take public health, medicine, the faith-based community, community-based organizations. If y'all could speak on that, on like, what's, what's your vision of how together we're going to, we're going to end this epidemic? In our community, right, in the Black community, we always knew that community and togetherness was the thing that was going to solve it, right? We've always don't known that, right? That's uh, right. We've That's always known right. that, right? It takes a village to raise a child, right? And, and we took that concept and applied it across the board, right? You know, you, you can always go to the neighbor's house to get some food if you were hungry, you know what I mean? So we always leaned on community, right, um, for our needs. Um, and so I think that we, that's just a part of our nature as Black people, right? Um, I also think that it is, it, is, it is important that we realize that none of us can do it alone. I can't do it by myself. You know what I mean? Wesley cannot do it by himself. Dante can't do it by himself, right? It's going to take a concerted effort. And I think for so long in this, in the work, we've always done it siloed, right? Where it was focused first on just getting people, you know, just to be okay and be comfortable, right? And so the focus was treatment, right? How do I focus and center treatment, right? Of people who, who contracted HIV. But now it's like, okay, you can't forget about those who, um, who are put at high risk, because I'm very clear about that, right? We, we don't choose to put ourselves at risk. There are systems that put us at risk, right? And so that's important and a, an important distinction, right? And so we have to have those conversations and be honest that, you know, it's going to take all of us. And so for me, what I see in a utopic society <laughs> is a world without isms, where we all can recognize each other's humanity, respect each other's humanity, and say, regardless of why your plight may not be the same as mine, we all have one. And if we all can still be and understand that my plight is no greater than your plight, your plight is no greater than mine, but if we work together, we all can overcome our own plights, right? And to get to the place that we need to be for each other. You are um, preaching now. You're in here preaching now. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to give the name. I just would say, you know, we're spiritually inclined. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh -oh, but, but uh -oh. we, 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 again, we are who we are. Right. And we, right. and, and I stand in that, but I'm also very clear too, that, you know, I, I step in any space as my total complete and whole self. Um, and so th there will be moments where that side will just tap out every now and again and just come on in, right? Um, but I think it's important, you know, it's important that we recognize that we all, to uh, send it to that, to that, in that same vein, right? I need you, right? You need me, said the songwriter, right? 
we're, we're all this in this together, right? Ain't that the songwriter wrote? Um, and so it's important that we remember that. And, and, and what I will say is that despite the struggles and despite the systems that have attempted um, to separate that thought process from the Black community, we have always stayed true to that right? It looked differently. And of course, we still have our own personal stuff that sometimes creeps in and, 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 and tries to divide us. But ultimately, when it matters, we all show up for each other. And I think that's important that we, that we highlight that and we give you know, recognition to that. And so I'm excited at the fact that, and that's the thing that will not allow me to say, that's not my plight. That's not what I'm going through. And so you know, I ain't got time to worry about the church telling me and denying me, right? I'm going to keep on. No, I still got to pull them in because somebody will listen to that pastor that will not listen to me. There is somebody who will listen to me that will not listen to that pastor. And so we work together, then we hear and we get in everybody. Everybody's hearing the message. Well, you've just hit on something that's really important. You understand that when you look statistically, in other ways that we are overrepresented, right? We are overrepresented in the church. Like we are very church going people. So it is not strategic to concede that territory. If you really trying to end an epidemic, it's just not strategic. Intentionality. Well, I'm gonna leave that. I'm gonna gonna put that there, intentionality. Things I wanna uh, transition us to as we're talking about allyship and and working well together. I'm really curious around, um, and I think we've alluded to it at some point during our conversation today, is prep. So the drug prep, the tool prep, the resource prep, however we wanna refer to it. I'm curious really to hear more about it, to um, better understand its effectiveness, to hear if there are any sort of uh, myths that we'd like to sort of expose and uh, you know, deal with today. So what do we know about PrEP and its effectiveness? Uh, what do we know about its availability, its affordability? Let's talk about it. So PrEP is uh, an amazing tool in fighting HIV. Um, We try to not use this comparison, but think of it like birth control, right? It is a one-time daily pill that is about 99% effective in stopping someone from being, um, well, if they they are exposed to HIV, it stops them from converting and becoming um, infectious. And so this is also a part of the last, you know, piece of conversation that Torian was talking about is getting that messaging to our communities, that there is a pill to prevent you from becoming infected with HIV or becoming a person living with HIV um, just by taking one pill a day. And so i never forget, I was in um, a meeting with a young Black woman. She was a state representative in a heavily uh, populated mostly black district. She was young, she's in her early 30s, and we were explaining to her all of the new advances uh, in HIV and the HIV field. And we talked to her about PrEP and she was completely blown away. Like to the point she was talking to her young staff members, was like, do y'all hear this? Y'all need to get up on PrEP. (laughs) And so I think 
some of the misconceptions of it is it's around stigma. You know, what does this say about me if I start taking PrEP? Does it say that I'm, you know, sexually suggestive and promiscuous and in trying to shift that conversation to know you're making a conscious decision to take care of your sexual health. That your sexual health is just as important as your mental health and as your physical health. Now, speaking in the context of where we are and who we are, it's difficult for folks that are low income. They're, it's difficult for um, young uh, gay and bisexual men to access these things called PrEP, this pill, this PrEP, this medication, this life-saving drug. And so trying to uh, combat and counteract those barriers to access is another issue that we have to 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 talk about and we have to get at. So it's messaging, it's stigma, and it's access. If you tell somebody prep works and they can't get on prep, then what do you do? Right. Um, yeah. So it's you know, it's a wraparound issue. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, most insurance plans and state Medicaid programs cover it. But to your point earlier, if we're not expanding Medicaid, then that becomes the, the wall at which access kind of stops for a lot of our communities that are low income. Yeah, so just thinking, picking up from our earlier, when we talked about Medicaid, right? Um, Medicaid managed care uh, contracts have drug formularies. And a lot of times they don't put new prescriptions on those drug formularies. And you got to wait seven to 10 years for them to start putting PrEP on their insurance coverage list. And so a lot of our advocacy around um, prescription drugs and new innovations like a PrEP is saying to Medicaid managed care companies and elected officials and governors that have to negotiate these new contracts that, hey, we want the state formulary, the Medicaid managed care formulary to match the federal formulary so that there is a have, there isn't a have or have not situation going on. Right. right? And, and how old, how old is PrEP? Like how long has PrEP been around? Because I'm trying to think about as people try to do the math in their heads around these seven to 10 year gaps before new drugs can be added you know, given such great science and data behind PrEP, you know, surely it's going to have a strong case, but I'm just wondering, it depends for the average person out there, they may not know how long PrEP has even been around and whether we're talking about waiting 10 years or waiting, you know, maybe two years, depending on how long PrEP has been around. So PrEP has been around since 2012. It was, okay. it was approved by FDA in 2012. Um, and, and then there's, at that time, it was um, Trivada, right? Um, but now there's another option um, um, for um, PrEP. I think it's important to go back to the last question around PrEP um, is one, realizing that PrEP is about self-agency, right? And to Wesley's point, it's about individuals taking care of their sexual health just as well they, they, as they should take care of their mental health, right? Also, recognizing that so i'll say it this way so there is about a 10 percent um usage by people who are mostly impacted by the infection right by hiv um so for example black people black gay men who account for again over 60 percent of infections right of people living with hiv they only account for about 10% of PrEP um, usage, right? There's something wrong in the water, right? 
Um, so there's something that is just not that that math don't add up, right? And so it's important one to to, to note that. I think the other thing to impo- it's important to note is that prep requires you to access the healthcare system because prep requires that you consistently, typically on a quarterly basis, you go and see your provider and you get HIV test, you get um, sexually uh, transmitted disease or infections test, and you also get blood work. So you get the creatine levels, you get the, the, the liver enzymes, the kidney, like you get that whole um, test, that, that whole lineup. And so it's about, we know that black and brown people typically do not access healthcare systems, right? They access the emergency room for their healthcare, right? And that's usually when something is wrong, right? And so getting more black and brown people on PrEP who can take PrEP because PrEP is not for everybody, right? Because again, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that can prevent someone from being on PrEP. But for everyone who can and should be on it, they should be on it. They literally should be pushing people to get on PrEP who can because it, it, it creates the ability for people to access the healthcare system, which is something that we need. So again, it's a preventative measure, right? So then you can see that same doctor, right? To have some of the other um, tests that, you know, the prostate stuff we can talk about, right? These other things that can now be done because you now have access to the healthcare system, which traditionally we as black and brown people do not have access to. I, I love in our conversation how evident it is to me, and it seems that the most stigmatized sort of um, health-related issues always seem to get this right. The people who are on the front lines of, oh my gosh, people working in substance abuse, the people on the front lines working on HIV always understand how holistically we must approach these issues and people's needs. They understand that you got to meet people where they are. They understand the systemic barriers. They understand that it can't just be isolated sort of efforts, that they have to be connected to a larger sort of constellation of understanding, effort, need, you know, all, all these things. Um, you know, so we've talked all in all in this conversation, we've talked about everything from housing and transit to Medicaid expansion and access to primary care providers. And um, that just, tells me that y'all y'all really have a heart for what it means to create well people despite the fact that you just you are working specifically in justice around hiv aids related health issues that that may be the title of your job or your organizations but but really y'all are attending to the cracks in the various parts of our systems that are not producing well people so because um, the data supports that logic, right? The data support that, for an example, if we get people virally suppressed, right, who are living with HIV, if we get them virally suppressed, there's this, this, um, this concept or this reality, I should say, um, of U equals U, right? So undetectable equals untransmittable. What that means is that a person who is virally suppressed, who is living with HIV, cannot say it again, cannot transmit HIV to their sexual partners. Cannot, right? That is evidence. We have the, the scientific background that supports that, right? And so it's important that 
when we are having these conversations that we remember that, you know what I mean? That, that we bring those type of things to the forefront, right? It's like, um, but yeah, you know, like viral suppression, you know, and so you equals you. So when you, um, when a person is living with HIV, they get virally suppressed, they cannot transmit the, the virus, right? And so you have to, we have to utilize those kind of the same metrics and, and talking about those things and bringing those things to the forefront to really dig away at the stigma because I tell people all the time, HIV does not kill, stigma kills, right? And so that's, that's yeah. what's important and that's what we need to make sure that we- That's about to be my Facebook post for today. That we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's the, it's the truth. Oh, evidence, that's what I was saying. The evidence shows it, right? I was I mean, like, where, where was I going with that thought? Evidence, right? The evidence shows that if a person is virally suppressed, their health outcomes, um, increase, right? They have better health outcomes. What we also know is that if a person, for example, does not have housing, they are less likely to be virally suppressed, right? Because they're less likely to take their medication because their focus is housing, right? The same way with employment. If I do sex work, right, and I get my money and, my, and the person that is going to pay me is going to pay me more money for a specific kind of sex, you think I'm going to prioritize my sexual health over this money that is my need, right? And so scientific, like there's data that supports the need for a holistic approach to addressing HIV. Um, and so we cannot, we cannot separate them. For too long, we've done that. But what we're realizing it now, and again, this is not new. This is, this is information that has been out there for years. But I think it's finally beginning to stick and get some traction because we realize that, like, it's now or never. It is now or never. Oh, yeah. I was just going to um, talk about PrEP and how we need to normalize um, women taking PrEP, especially Black women, because um, that's been, you know, one of the added stigmas to um, PrEP and that prevention piece that, you know, women feel like they can't take PrEP because, you know, they think it's a man thing or even more so like a gay male thing, but we need to make sure that we are normalizing conversations about females taking PrEP well, I'm going to be more specific and say Travada because I know that the new drug, the SCOBY, hasn't been tested for females yet, but if they can get on Travada for PrEP, then I, we should have more normalized conversations about that as well. And so I think that goes and ties into, you know, some of the myths about PrEP and things of that nature. Well, let me just say this has been an incredibly enlightening and exciting conversation. Uh, first, I want to thank you for your work. I am grateful that you all occupy a space of influence, a space where you are doing some really incredible work um, in your communities, in your states, in the spaces that you occupy. And so Torian, Dante, Wesley, we appreciate First of all, your work, your energy, your tenacity, your genius um, that you bring to the field. And we are better because of folks like you. I'm encouraged that with people like you leading this work, that we will really make uh, a huge step forward. In fact, the end will be near. Uh, the end game will be right here and we can continue to make incredible process on the front of eradicating HIV for good. So I wanna thank you so much for your time today. I want to uh, thank you for uh, 
just giving us some incredible, a wealth of information that is so helpful to, to those of us who are in the work, uh, as well as for those who are seeking out information for themselves. Uh, thank you again for joining us today on episode number 11 for Black Body Health, the podcast, Medicaid and HIV advocacy. December 1st is World AIDS Day, a day to raise awareness of the global impact of HIV and AIDS. The theme for the 2020 observance is Ending the HIV-AIDS Epidemic, Resilience and Impact. Everyone between 13 and 64 should get tested at least once. People at high risk for HIV should get tested more often. To find a testing site, visit www.hivtest.org. That's www.hivtest.org. Well, that wraps up this episode of Black Body Health, the podcast. Until next time, this is your co-host, Brittany. And Ideal. You have a great day. Thanks for tuning in.